520-809-4463. Now, we were talking about today's show, which we will be dealing with. Uh, that's now important. Our president, uh, Joe Biden, said that as of yesterday, there have been 580,000 people who have died because of this virus which they're trying to get taken care of now. They're moving fast, but then again, when you're dying, you move too slow. So that is taking place now. And do we have anybody else on the line with us? We have him, Ron, and we have uh, Miss Witt. Uh, do we have Miss Hammond? No, we're not. I'm sorry. So you have Jackie? Uh, no. Who do you have? Uh, we have uh, 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 Rod on the phone. We know, we know, we've got Attorney Nimrod. Okay, then we have, uh, I don't want to pronounce your name wrong, Miss W-I-T-T. Okay. Calando. Calando, okay. Let's do this. Um, we're talking about our show today, and uh, Yolanda, Calanda, I hope we get your name right, that you can cover everything. Because you, uh, where are you located? Uh, right now, I am in Prince George's County, Maryland, uh, so right outside of Washington, D.C. Okay, now, Mr. Attorney Nimrod. Good to be with you this evening. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I didn't want to take away from you, but we're going to uh, let you introduce the person, and when the other come on, we'll just proceed with the show. We're talking about vaccination, how important. I did say earlier that uh, our president said that there's been 580,000 people who have died because of virus. And this is what this show is all about. A lot of people don't understand how important to get their shots, okay? Um, and that's why we got people on the phone today on the show. And a lot of people get confused. Our people get confused that they keep, we can always think about the bad things, but we can't think about the good thing. The only people say about the good thing is uh, our good friend Ours, that's a good thing. They, they really relate to Tuskegee about the, when they used us for guinea pigs because of syphilis. But now we got this virus which seems to come around every hundred years. So. Uh, Mr. Nimrod, I can continue, but we want you to uh, uh, take over. Well, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you, MC. I sure appreciate this. You know, I, I don't think that there's many topics that we can talk about right now that are more important than the ones that we're engaging in right now. The idea that some people are going to live and some are going to die. And if we have the ability to prevent some uh, of that suffering. And that's not just suffering to the individuals, the ones that are sick, the ones that uh, pass away, or even their families. We're talking about communities that are going to lose people who are valuable and who uh, are instrumental in making sure that we progress in the same dreams that our uh, ancestors dreamed of. To do anything less than all of our efforts at this point would be, in my, in my mind, morally reprehensible. Um, so I, I, I think that rather than spending a, a lot of time on introductions, let, let, let's, let's do this. Uh, what, what brings you to the show? What brings you to this topic, and why is it important for us today? 
Young lady, we're yelling to you. Okay. Well, thank you so much for the um, for inviting me for talking today. Um, so, along with my colleague um, Jacqueline, um, I came here today to just discuss, um, really look at this and talk about where we are and um, how we've kind of gotten here. Um, not so much so, but also to talk about solutions to these issues that we're having around vaccine hesitancy. Um, so to really talk about that and what we can do to reach folks and to encourage them to um, get their vaccination and hopefully provide um, information or discussion on um, how we can do that and encourage folks. Well, and I appreciate that. You come at this from a from an academic perspective that many of us do not have the privilege to, uh, to, to literally be a part of. I mean, uh, with your studies in psychology, uh, with your postgraduate work, uh, both in the region and in your work uh, outside of the area, tell us, what do we need to be telling people at this point? I mean, how, uh, to, to decrease hesitancy, if there is such a thing. I talk to a lot of people every day through the NAACP and other channels, and we want the vaccine, we want to be healthy. Uh, some people have questions. How can we be better equipped to assist our uh, friends and family in making good decisions? Well, that's a good question. And I think that some of the, the key things that we have to do for the community is provide information. I know we've seen a lot of information and we've um, heard all kind of information on COVID at this point. We're probably a little bit fatigued, but I think it's important to really understand what's happening right now with folks not wanting to get that vaccine. So just really understand what is vaccine hesitancy, um, knowing that, you know, that, that causes the delay in acceptance and refusing the vaccination, um, despite it being available as it is now. So it's, right now it's pretty widely available, available um, but there's still some hesitation as to why people are not going to get that vaccine. And, and that, that's many factors. And so first, knowing what that means, then we can kind of delve into those factors as to why people may not be uh, wanting to engage in vaccination. And then we, uh, once we understand that information and, and we understand those factors, we can start to think about solutions and how to address those factors to make it accessible for everyone. Um, yes, ma'am. Well, let's, let's break that down. Let's break that down. So people talk about hesitancy. What is hesitancy? What is that really so hesitancy refers to essentially a delay or a delay in acceptance or just right out refusing um, a vaccination despite it being available. So just people may have a reason there for not wanting to partake in vaccination or they may just refuse it outright. And we have to figure out what those reasons are and kind of try to address those reasons in order to motivate folks. So it's a really, it's a, um, creating some change in, in people's thinking about the, the vaccine. So that requires information, that requires influence. Um, so it requires a, a multitude of things to um, ensure folks um, don't, you know, refuse that vaccine. And it could be some issues related to access. Um, it may not be an issue where people just don't want it, but they may have tried to get it and there's an access issue. There could be many, many factors. Well, now, I know that you did some postdoctorate work at uh, MD Anderson, if I have that right. Um, 
Yes, so currently I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the National Institutes of Health, but I did do some training at MD Anderson as well, yes. Yes, yes. Well, you've got deep experience in this. So when, when, when our friends and our relatives, I had a young man tell me, younger than I am, and I'm, I hate to think that I'm that old, but I'm certainly uh, middle-aged, uh, tell me, well, I'm not going to get it until they make me. Uh, can, can you tell us? I don't. I don't know what all goes into the thought process of a person like that. But can you can you tell us how we can approach these people in a way that doesn't turn them off to the concept that we all need to be healthy and protect ourselves and other people? Certainly, certainly. I I think I I know that that's certainly going around. People just saying that they don't want to get in it, and that's certainly fine. But I think um, for us that want to help folks and encourage them to get it. Uh, we need to really listen. We need to uh, listen to the reasons why they're saying they don't want to get it. Um, and we need to also um, uh, show them that, you know, we're listening. We're not here to try to change your mind necessarily. It's, a, it's totally um, your 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 choice. But you do want to try to provide the most accurate facts as to why. Um, and hopefully, hopefully over time, um, that will kind of plant a seed and hopefully motivate that person to want to engage in vaccination. So, um, and, and also having folks that have already gotten vaccinated and having those folks to serve as kind of an influencer to folks that um, may not want to get that vaccine, such as that young man, um, I think it's really important to really motivate them. So, for instance, if you have like someone in their barbershop, the barber may have gotten that vaccination and then they go and tell that young man well that may encourage him um, as he sees that barber is someone that is someone that he trusts um, someone that um, he feels that will do the right thing and won't give him wrong information so um, that may be the way well Dr. Reisman it encourages me that we're talking about a couple of things one we're talking about interpersonal relationships and before we get to that um, I want you to tell me if I'm crazy now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm black, I grew up in, in rural America, uh, like many other folks have tried to work as hard as we can and try to do that every day, and I know that this happens, this is not a unique story, this is a, an American story, that is particularly for us as black folks. If there is any chance that we are going to live to see the promise of America, to have the civil rights that we've been promised by the Constitution, to be entitled to the ability to participate in the economy, get an education, love our Lord like we do, and take care of our families like we want to. Doesn't it, doesn't it, is it just common sense that we need to survive in order to do that? And taking the vaccine is a piece of that? Am I wrong about that? Uh, is Dr. Reese on the phone? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Has she not joined us yet? Maybe not. Maybe not. Would, would you care to respond? Sure. Um, so, so your question is essentially thinking back about the historical kind of context of where we where we've been with research and where we are today. Is that correct? Yes. This is Dr. Richard. Um, so yeah, I think that. I think it's important to, you know, that we know our history about vaccination and research in the black community. And that's certainly been not a great um, history. Um, but we also have to recognize where we are today. 
Um, we, we have to recognize the things that are happening to us today and how things have evolved. Um, and hopefully um, we can work on building some trust. And I know that's difficult to do with our history. And I recognize that I'm a researcher. I know the, the um, what the implications are for uh, getting folks into research. Um, but really trying to really talk about how dangerous this virus is and why it's so important that we need to um, engage in vaccination. Um, and and we, we still, you know, we, we do just talk about that history, but we still need to also be able to move forward and participate in this. Um, and, and to just know that everybody's getting the vaccine. It's not um, particular groups that are only partaking in this. It's um, population-wide. So we want to we want to make sure we know that um Folks that are, are more likely to experience these disparities are negative effects of COVID-19. Um, we need to make sure we get them in there to get their vaccination. Let's do this in case we get... Uh, uh, Roger, 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 I have Jack on the phone. Yes, what I want to do, uh, Rod was going to waive uh, uh, introduction, but I think uh, Dr. Jackie Reese and, of course, we have the uh, other lady who's been carrying the show for us. Let's kind of reintroduce themselves to importance and the necessity of what we're trying to do, not only bring about education, but awareness that what we need to do if we want to stay here living, I'm talking about. Absolutely. Dr. Reese, go ahead. Sure. Uh, I'm Dr. Reese Smith. Um, I'm, I missed the, the beginning of the show, so I don't know exactly where we are. So. Please forgive me if I repeat, but I'm Dr. Reed Smith. I am a researcher um, looking at health disparities, trying to understand um, African Americans and, and their health promotion. And so as I've heard some of the questions, and, and one of the things that, you know, it seems like um, really important as we talk about vaccine hesitancy, because one, one of the reasons we're here talking about it is that we want to make sure that our communities are preserved and our communities have the best health. But in some respects, I heard the question before uh, asked to Dr. Witted is that, you know, if we want to make it toward our goals, what do we need to do to, um, to get to our goals in terms of our health? And yes, that may seem to some people is to, um, to take the vaccine and to others, because of their uh, life experience, ex experiences, those contextual experiences, what happened to me, when did it happen to me, what's been going on in my life that may limit me from being able to move toward it as quickly as other people do. And I don't feel like, I think Dr. Uh, Witted has said very clearly, is that it's not that, um, sometimes it's not necessarily vaccine hesitancy it's also health disparities, meaning that um, access. Who do we go to to get these vaccines? Where do we have to go to get them? Are we going into unfamiliar spaces where we have been unwelcome in the past? So there are a lot of variables, and it's very complex. However, I, I think the reason we're talking about this is that we can overcome it as well. So there are solutions to it. It will take time. We'll have to band together, and some of us will have to hold some hands, and some of us will have to listen to some stories that we seem like we don't understand, but 
So we have to be empathetic and, and hear their story. I heard Dr. Witted say that. Hear their story and then understand why, what is the barrier and help them create solutions for those barriers. Well, I, I think that that is incredible. I think that, that is incredible, and that's part of, part of the conversation that a lot of us are probably missing because, you know, for folks who have already received the vaccine or are very interested in it, uh, and, and Dr. Wood, I know that uh, coming from, from Pine Bluff, and I've, I've, I've been there and been to the uh, military installations just directly south of there, and so I appreciate talking to somebody who uh, is from the same land that I understand. Um, can, can you tell us, from, from your perspective, a, a, a little deeper? Well, first, if you would, give everyone a better sense of your, your background. Uh, folks may not understand the Genome Project and, and the implications that it has. And uh, I have to say that I'm, I'm proud to have two PhDs on the program uh, with your acumen. I mean, uh, these fields of study are not generally what folks uh, run across every day. And uh, without giving short shrift to it, can you, can you tell us uh, just a little bit about what you're doing now and how that influence, the implications of that for COVID-19? Sure. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, so I, I am a researcher currently at the National Institutes of Health, and many folks have heard, probably not familiar with that, but they know where Dr. Fauci is, or they've seen Dr. Fauci, so that's where Dr. Fauci is, and that's where research has been going on. Um, but I, I do uh, research in the Genome Institute, so the National Institute of, uh, of Gen uh, Genetics. So um, what I do is focus on family health history and communication and how that information can be shared for disease prevention. And so that's very important because the diseases I focus on, which are heritable diseases such as diabetes and heart disease, those, those have also been some diseases that have been um, associated with higher COVID deaths. So that's important to um, also, we're trying to tie that into um, our current project. So um, it's just really important for folks to really understand that um, uh, why it's so important, because if you already have an existing disease such as diabetes or heart disease, COVID can make it worse or make the outcomes worse. So um, that, that's how that's connected to my work. Um, and so uh, I, I feel like it's a duty in the position that I'm in, and as you said, that I have a PhD, I'm a flag, I'm at this institution to really be able to provide information um, to help the community any way that I can. Wow, and, and we're so appreciative of both of you being with us today and being able to share this information with the public because... Uh, and listen, I, I, I'm just a simple boy from uh, the back the backwoods of Oklahoma. I mean, I'm from the little, little dirt roads that people don't even know the name of. But, but it occurs to me, and, and the reason that I got a vaccine was because I want to be here for my kids and my family, and I believe in the medical research that's there. From, from what you all have seen, do you have the same, uh, do you have the same, Sentiment? Do, do, do you believe that this is the right thing that everyone should be receiving the vaccine, particularly black and brown populations? Yeah. So one of the things that when you think about the introduce yourself to people, people just turn turn in. Mm -hmm. Who's speaking now? Uh, Doctor Okay. One of the things that is important to know is the reasons why you want to receive the vaccine. 
And so there's also this perspective and this model and kind of theory that sometimes that we may not perceive ourselves at risk of those particular diseases. And so in some ways we may perceive the vaccine being more of a problem than perhaps me getting COVID. I can control, maybe I think I can control me getting COVID. And so you have reasons why that perhaps that you may not want, you may want to take the vaccine as I want to be here for my children. I want to be here for my community. I have other things, goals and things that I want to do. But also recognizing that sometimes people don't perceive themselves at risk for it. And that may also be, you know, like a lack of knowledge that when we saw Mayor Lightfoot from Chicago um, Mm -hmm. on um, the evening news saying that a large percentage of the individuals who were dying from COVID were black and brown people. That, you know, for some people who are having the opportunity to get that information, then that may, you know, cause us to take a pause. But also, one of the things that we have to know is whether or not a person perceives themselves at risk for those things. And so if I'm not at risk, then why do I need a vaccine? We saw that with young people, that maybe they didn't think that they would die from COVID because COVID was killing older Americans, right, or older um, people. So how do we get them to understand that they are at risk? We see this also in the same, in our own communities with diabetes. How How many of us know someone with diabetes but when they're at the family gathering, they eat more sugar than we do. Yes. 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 So you're, you're, you're right. At risk for an outburst, an adverse outcome is mm-hmm. going to be an important piece. And that's part of uh, creating knowledge, but also recognizing sometimes we don't perceive ourselves at risk because dad died from diabetes. So I'm not going right. to look at it in that way. Right. Right. So we, this is just something that happens to us, Doc? Is that what you're saying? It just it happens to, it happens to groups across populations. Mm-hmm. However, it can happen to, you know, that sometimes this is one of those phenomenons that for us, and that could be a lack of trust in doctors. That, you know, I talked to someone just the other day, and I said something about pre-diabetes, and they said, yeah, um, I have diabetes. I said, oh, you don't have any pre-existing, uh, I'm talking about vaccine hesitancy. You don't mm-hmm. have any pre-existing uh, conditions? And they said, no. Um, well, I don't have diabetes. The doctor thinks I do. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I was excited about, I said, oh, look for you. You don't have any pre-existing. And she said, no, the doctor thinks I do, but I don't. So I don't take that medication. So it is, you know, trying to help people understand what that may mean for them. But also, too, it may be scary. So that's that empathy piece. Is, is, is moving towards people with empathy and understanding that there may be a fear. They may look like a, a big, strong person, and they don't show fear in the way that we acknowledge fear, but there may be some anxiety or uncomfortableness with moving forward. If we just tune, if you just tune in, you listen to a special show on vaccine and all the different problems that black and brown people, not limited to them, suffer. I have a couple questions. One is, uh, diabetes hereditary? Yes, 
it is it is a hereditary disease, um, but there are also environmental factors that can influence how that shows itself in, in your body. So if you say, for instance, if you're in a family that may be a diabetes family and most people in the family have it and the eating habits are not so great and if there's no physical activity or limited, um, that, that may put you more at risk for poor outcomes. And the same thing, if you have it, and you know that it runs in your family, but you do things to limit the poor outcomes. You may do more exercise, you may eat better diet. Um, that may also be some things that can be modifiable that can prevent that diabetes from really um, happening at a worse rate than if you didn't do anything. So it is something that is passed along family. So Another yeah. thing I've heard. It's a vision, but if you can change that outcome, and that's a very important point and very empowering for all of us in our community. So there are programs and evidence-based programs that we, just because a person may have pre-diabetes, where you start to see that uh, A1C go up, that doesn't mean that that person has to convert to be diabetic. And so we can, you can stop that. And there are programs, I, I, I lead a program now, which I, I facilitate a program now, that we can delay that. We can delay that outcome, and we can see uh, A1Cs that were in pre-diabetic range that can go back down to normal ranges. My other question, this is MC Richardson, my other question, I've heard the McDermott vaccine was created by a black female scientist. Is that true? Speak to that, Dr. Wittich. She is uh, all on. Okay. <laughs> yes, uh, so her name is Dr. Kismikia Corbett, and she um, is also a researcher at NIH, and she did. She works she works in the lab, a coronavirus lab. They have an entire um, lab dedicated to, to the study of coronaviruses, and they're different kinds. And so she did have um, a big part in creating the vaccine that is, for Moderna, so they have a partnership with Moderna. And I think that also lends um, leads into a space of understanding that they have a coronavirus lab at NIH. Kalandra, um, can you speak to a little bit about kind of that um, research that started way before COVID-19? Yeah, so that that's something that I, I, probably many people don't know, but research has been ongoing with coronaviruses for many, many years. Um, so they're constantly monitoring and doing research and trying to figure out how, how that virus changes and shifts. So um, back in 2020, I think February, January, they were already they were already on it. They already knew what was coming. Um, they had already beginning to understand the DNA of this virus, the RNA of the virus. And so they were really trying to figure out, you know, that solution of way before the general public probably even knew. Um, so there are many scientists, many resources that went into that. So people probably wonder, how did it get made so fast? That's one of the issues with the information is people don't understand how can you get this done so quickly. Um, and versus they may compare it to some disease like um, uh, diabetes or something else. Well, it, it was created so quickly because there was so much money poured into this so quickly and so many scientists and so many partnerships poured into this. And it was developed that fast. Um, so there were many, many, many hands um, involved in that in that work. And several pharmaceutical companies as well 
all took it. So basically everything shut down and it was a major focus just on figuring out that coronavirus and getting that um, out the door and so that it can be made and be distributed as it is now. That is phenomenal. It, it, and, 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 and I really appreciate you both sharing not only some of the research that's going on and this is not new and that we've been working on this, but also from the standpoint of just just folks who have had to deal with so much. And I don't know whether the layering on of discrimination, whether it's at the job or in you know, our public spaces where you go to the Sonic and you're trying to order a corn dog and they won't feed you, uh, or any of the other multitude of uh, disrespectful indignities that we have to deal with, um, adds to our concern. And and, and maybe, maybe in dealing with those things, you know, you see this as the coronavirus is just another thing. Is that something that we're dealing with? Is that what we're looking at in terms of a, of a psychological uh, perspective? I would say so. Um, I feel like for the black community, it is like one more thing to have to kind of deal with and figure out. Um, and that makes it hard for folks to be really motivated to want to really, as we talked about, engage in taking the vaccine. It's one more thing. Um, so right. certainly, um, there are issues in the healthcare system um, that are discriminatory um, that we have to overcome in order to be able to get um, access to this. So certainly, uh, there are issues before this this virus came out and all this happened, um, there, those things are already there. Um, and, and unfortunately, you, you're able to see why those barriers have such a big, big impact on the outcome of COVID for black and brown folks um, because of those biases and because of that discrimination in the healthcare system um, does factor into how your outcomes will be. That's right. That's right. Well, and, and if we can't even get past that part, then we never get to Viktor Frankl's analysis of, you know, what is this most important thing that we're going to work towards, right? Um, and so, Dr. Uh, Reese Smith, as you were talking about, um, uh, I'm sorry, no, it wasn't Dr. Reese Smith. It, it was. Um, Dr. Witted. Dr. Witted, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, I think that you were saying that. that realizing what the motivational factors that we have for even getting the vaccine. So it's, it's, it's sometimes us, like, hey, I just want to live, or if I want to live for these other people. But if we can't get there, then we're going to have a hard time addressing, you know, uh, or it, it being able to sustain ourselves, let alone sustain somebody else. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? That's very true. Um, and I think that, I think for all of us and for folks especially that are hesitant, um, we have to figure out why we're doing um, the things that we're doing. But there's always a motivation behind it. Um, and we have to touch on that motivation in order to activate that in folks, especially that don't want to engage in it. So whether it be for um, like their grandkids or their children or their family, period, um, that they want to be there for, for whatever purpose, um, we need to really figure that out. and. Um, um, galvanize that as a tool to motivate folks. So, um, is it to just be healthy? Is it to be able to um, uh, maybe to return and have your life back, to be outside, to be able to enjoy day-to-day -day activities and to or be able to travel? So, whatever that motivation is, 
um, we need to figure it out and start to um, uh, really, you know, be able to speak to that when we're talking to folks that aren't really in the space of wanting to um, engage in vaccination. Well, as we think about the Kansas City area and at least Missouri, uh, I believe the MC would back me up on this. Uh, Reverend Mick Miles, last uh, last program, as well as Vernon Howard. Kansas City clergy is 100% dedicated to making sure that we can get vaccine, vaccines to the people that want them. But when we engage these people, we need to be thinking about their motivations as a precept. And so if, uh, if, if we can determine whether or not you know, uh, their family's important or their community's important or their church that they attend, that they like to attend. Uh, should those be things that we, like, think about uh, talking about them with before we approach them? Well, have you been vaccinated, right, in, in terms of making that the uh, the direct approach? Absolutely. And, you know, when you, you're talking about a theory of behavior change that physicians uh, use, uh, hospitals use, um, your pharmacists, anyone you talk to is kind of motivational interviewing. What is important to you? What are your values? What are your roles? Um, whether I want to be a role model for my kids or whether I want to be alive for my kids, whatever that may be. And so beginning to be able to meet people where they are, what is most important to you? And how does this vaccine maybe help you to get to that as well? Right on, right on. Um, now this is gonna seem uh, perhaps just a little weird, but I want to ask you, recently the CDC, I believe, came out and said that racism should be looked at as a, fact, as a health determinative factor. Uh, do you all have any insight on that? Absolutely. So yeah. there's this concept of social determinants of health. Social determinants. So how does your social environment affect your health? And so because of race and discrimination, that can limit what you can get and how far you can get, whether that be access to jobs, whether that's access to uh, education, whatever that may be. And so then those things, those social determinants of health, what we know is when I start looking at health outcomes and health disparities, people that have poor outcomes, I'm looking at income, I'm gonna look at education, those things, and I'm looking at wealth. Well, and that's another thing that we starting to hear kind of in a mainstream is that how can we draw, not, not just how much money you have on the bank, in the bank, but how much money that you can get access to. So if you, ha if you own a house, you have access to more money, right? Mm -hmm. But if you don't own a house, you don't have that access to more money. And so racism, if you limit my job, if you limit my education, then that will affect my health adversely. Mm -hmm. Come on, come on. And those those, those health determinants uh, that are other factors that might not depend on whether or not you get a vitamin or a pill or get to see a doctor or a nurse on a particular day, those can have long-lasting implications. So very true. And so what we say as researchers, if we hold those things constant, whether you have insurance, if I, if I try to make insurance not affect the model or not affect the equation, that regardless of those things, your race will mean that you ha may have poor outcomes, even if you have insurance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you have education, even if you have a job sometimes, 
it still can affect your insurance. And I'm sure we can all speak about the time when we've gone to the doctor and people had this <laughs> encounter us. We've heard right. stories where the young lady went to the doctor. I believe this was in Chicago, but don't start me to lie. But she got there and they told her she was having a panic attack. In a pandemic, she could not breathe. But hers was a panic attack. And they took her So those things, and that's because of race. And it also goes to the mistrust that we have where people have deemed us as less human or not thought of us as human. Come on. And have done uh, uh, experiments and things on us in medical settings. So then that affects health. So things can affect that. Now, other social determinants of health can be where you live in a city. Does your city have parks? Does your city have sidewalks? That means mm-hmm. the lifestyle changes, exercising, being more physically active. Does your um, does your neighborhood have a grocery store where you can buy fresh fruits and vegetables? So, looking at those things, and I, I did some research with the University of uh, Kansas and looking at Kansas City and Kansas City, Kansas, and looking at parks. Kansas City has a lot of parks, but some of those parks are not up to par. And so, mm-hmm. like I say, there are parks in the neighborhood, but then we started looking at the park, um, the, the, the quality of the park. Yeah. So that's the social determinant. Who's coming over there taking care of that park? Right, right. And I, and I just want to say, it's such, so important that the CDC did that to declare uh, racism as a public health issue because that recognition, essentially what that does, it helps other health departments and other health organizations focus their energy and funding into that issue as they haven't been doing in previous years. So that kind of helps create funding mechanisms to address those issues where they haven't traditionally been and to really say that this is important. It does adversely affect uh, health. Um, your race, when otherwise it hasn't been recognized for that. So uh, it's so very important. Uh, well, and we have funding money as well. We have funding money to look at that. Yes, yes. Let, let, let me ask you from a different tangent. We in Missouri are a state that has not only, uh, the legislature has not passed Medicaid uh, expansion, uh, the people did it last year. And the NAACP, of course, is happy to be active in that effort. But then the legislature didn't fund it. And so are health disparities being helped by uh, the lack of expense? Yes, can you hear me? Okay. Yes, so my, my question is, are health disparities being impacted by the lack of expansion of Medicare, uh, even if that just includes the funding of, I'm sorry, Medicaid, of Medicaid. Absolutely. If, you know, the, the one thing that we have to do is, is people have to be able to afford to go to the doctor. So if you don't have insurance or you're underinsured, that's, 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 that's the barrier right there. That's, it's like a no-starter. Um, that people won't go, and I, I saw the young man speaking on TV who was part of one of the uh, protests yesterday, and he said, for the past 20 years, I haven't had insurance, so I don't even know if I have underlying conditions. So that that lends itself to um, cause more difficulties with health disparities. We don't even know, so we have people who, who think that they're not at risk for COVID, 
because they don't even know they have a health disparity. They don't even have a family disparity. Right, 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 right. Which is frightening. Which is frightening. Right. But uh, even as, as I look at my own, my own family, you know, your comments about you know uh, people who have or know that they have or are at risk for diabetes still eating up everything that they can that they probably ought not be eating. People who are, who have high blood pressure not taking their medication because they feel okay, right? Uh, you know, knowing that we, as, as a, I, I take this as right, uh, are more at risk for strokes and heart attacks than some other folks. You are absolutely right. Okay. Yeah, so, and, and, and tell us, as a community, you've got community activists who are listening to this program or will listen in the future. You certainly have the ear of the Missouri State Conference of the NAACP right now. How do we communicate the message to let our people know that we are definitely first at risk and that we, that we have something to live for? What should we do? I think one of the things that we do, one is we, we perceive with empathy. Because, you know, what we know is knowledge does not, does not necessarily mean behavior change. So all of us know that we should be more physically active, and we all know that we should eat right. And if I say raise your hand, both of, all of us would have both of our hands raised. But it doesn't mean that that's going to be the behavior that we're going to engage in. And so one of the things that we need to know is looking at a multifaceted uh, solution model. So we have to do, look at it from individual differences. There's going to be people who, say, who are deniers that, of course, I don't need to eat right, or, or I'm not I'm not overweight, or it's not affecting me adversely, um, or I don't have diabetes. There are going to be people that have individual differences, but also we're going to have to look at it from a community perspective. You talked about Pastor Miles. You talked about uh, Vernon as well. Being, uh, being part of those that help us look at community perspectives, getting the word out, creating uh, social norms for physical activity, meaning that how can we get walking programs? Because what we find is the more we see other people in our neighborhoods walking, the more we walk. But we also know that physical activity, a barrier for physical activity is also safety and a lack of sidewalks, things like that. So we've got to deal with those community things that we're already dealing with those also affect health. And then we also have to look at systematic. So then we have to look at, you know, uh, we have to be activist and politically active in terms of what are the systems that create those barriers as well. And I'll defer to Calandra to speak to families and her experience. And yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I concur that that's it's, I, one thing that I've learned as a researcher, there's no one particular thing that you can link to another thing that's causing it. There's always a multitude of factors in, in my type of research. And so um, it's important to um, seek out those different areas, especially uh, family. Family is very important. Family is very influential. And with my research um, dealing with family health history and how families communicate that information, um, it's important to be able to give them tools in order to, in order to be able to do something about it. So, for example, the tool that I work with um, is, is a tool that it allows you to be able to have information and be able to assess this and to be able to help you also communicate that to your other family members and friends in your network. Um, so those things are really important, those relationships 
um, how, what, what those people look like and the information that they pass on can be very influential in how you live your life. Um, so if you see the grandmother that's cooking, you know, she may be cooking things that are not so healthy. Um, you know, there's, there's ways to maybe try to figure out, okay, I know that she had heart disease or she had diabetes, but me going forward, knowing what I know about my family health history, I want to make a change. You know, I want to, you know, eat better. I want to do things a little bit different, still keep the tradition, still keep the culture, but, you know, shift that a little bit so that you can have better outcomes. I mean, also that, that looking at your community is such a such an important issue and looking at the policy implications that are happening, your political leaders, and being involved in the political process in your community at the community level is so important because you need to figure out where that money is going, what percentage of that budget is going to help in your county or your state so you know what your community is getting and what your community needs. Um, so a lot of people don't know that because they're not engaged in the political process. They may vote, but it, it, after you vote, you need to really get involved in, in uh, what's happening with money as it goes towards health in the community and why things aren't changing, why certain areas may be getting more than other areas. Um, and as people, we can really get involved as activists. We can get involved in making change in it. Let me ask you, let me ask both of you, uh, uh, PhDs as well as... Uh our good our friend, attorney, um, what factor does stress have on a person? We talked about diabetes. We talked about high blood pressure. And a lot of people say low blood pressure is more dangerous than high blood pressure. What about the stress factor? Stress is very a very important factor. And that goes back to... Um, so I like uh, the way that I look at it as a researcher is chronic stress. So those things in your environment that you may be exposed to, um, say, for instance, you are having to um, be engaged with a person in the healthcare system that's not listening to you, that's not listening to your issue. And when you're telling them that you have something going on or may, may not be able to access certain things that you need to be healthy, um, those all create stress in your life. Um, and for folks that are in communities that have to engage with that stressor over and over again and, and they keep having to figure out these solutions, um, that does create a biological um, mechanism that can lead to a health outcome such as high blood pressure or increased risk for diabetes. Um, so that, that's a very important factor that we need to also um, try to address. Another thing I'd like to uh, interject is absolutely I agree with Dr. Witted. The stress is um, one of those um, uh, variables that we look at when we look at health, and, and that's probably why the CDC recognized racism, because where discrimination comes, becomes, comes stress, with discrimination or lack of, of the ability to access jobs or to have financial stability or food instability, that's stress. Um, but the other thing that I want to look at is that there we do have ways we want to work work with the, we want to work to uh, change the system, but also too there are individual differences. And so I probably didn't mention that I'm a psychologist, and so looking at it from the psychological perspective is that we can have stressful experiences, but we can uh, find ways to um, to soothe ourselves within those experiences. And one of those things that, as African-Americans, we uh, want to begin to 
or to embrace more fully is how to uh, use systems that may help us decrease stress, whether that be uh, counseling systems or whether that be, you know, just our social connections, you know, connecting to our family, our community, uh, finding ways to decrease stress, whether that be physical activity as well. But looking at, so sometimes, we, you know, when, when I meet with people in therapy, sometimes I say, I cannot change what's out there. I only can change how we exist in it. So we, stress will be there, and we will continue to try to change systems, but we also can be empowered to um, manage our own stress or be able to find a way to be at peace while we are moving through these systems. Can, can we have just a quick plug for cognitive behavioral therapy and what that could mean, not only in life of COVID, but also with being black in America right now? Absolutely. So cognitive behavioral therapy is an excellent way of kind of looking at um, how to, um, you know, to manage kind of life. And, and even, as you said, not only with COVID, but it is, it is kind of a lifestyle and a way of life. And what we need to know is cognitive is our thoughts. And I, what we need to know about our thoughts is our thoughts affect how we feel and how we behave. So usually when people are in therapy, I say, let's look at our thoughts. So if I have a thought, you know, if you think about, I'll, I'll use this example. Um, if you have, if you're going to work in the morning, you're headed out and you're running a little late and you get outside and you have a flat tire and whatever you do you resolve the issue with the flat tire but sometimes during that day what we'll say is i had a flat tire so this is going to be a bad day that is a thought you know once that, again go ahead and that thought affects how we feel and how we behave so this is going to be a bad day. So I'm, I'm just recently back in uh, Kansas City. Um, I started a new job at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, on, on a day, and the police gave me a ticket on the first day. And the whole day I was trying to cognitively balance, okay, got a ticket, it's over. Now what do we need to do with the rest of this day? That is done. We'll deal with it when it's time to deal with it. And what do we need to, how do we need to feel about this day? I'm excited to have this job. This is a new opportunity. This is fun. I, you know, changing how we think changes our behavior. Because if we, if we think, if we have uncomfortable thoughts, then we will behave in a way that's uncomfortable. We may want to sit down. We may not want to talk to anybody. So oh. looking at our thoughts, how we feel will affect, I mean, looking at our thoughts, how we think, will affect how we feel and how we behave. So always looking at our thoughts. Okay, once again, we reached that bad time. Our show is about over, but what we want to do is we really appreciate not only the NAACP for the state of Missouri, but also our two PhDs that we want to have continuation of you guys because not only it happening in Kansas City, but it's happening all throughout the world in the United States. Just wanted to say about the United Minority Media Association, which is the parent organization over guests who come to Kansas City, and we are recruiting members, we are recruiting partners, and the number I can be reached at is 816-822-8866. The sale number is 
694-2273. Quickly, before our guests tell you how they can be reached, or is there any volunteers, that what the United Minority Media Association is doing on in Ketcha, Arkansas, that's 100 years old, where discrimination, where they stole their land, and also a person was murdered. Two black folks got executed in Little Rock back in 1925. They're working on that, but more importantly, each and every one of you, and tell your friend, they can revisit these shows by going to uh, Ferguson, USA, St. Louis, um, podcast, and you want to finish that out, Ira? And he will come to you the second 
sincerity of each month with the more exciting, educational, and must-listen-to shows. Thank you. Ira, tell about Scott. Scott, I engineer, it wouldn't be possible without him. Well, uh, Scott, well, Scott Owens is, uh, is our general manager in the uh, Yes, I can be reached at FergusonUSAHotTalkRadio.com or my email is voiceovers4u, number four, letter U, at gmail.com. And uh, Attorney uh, Nimrod Chappell, would you please call me in the next two or three minutes at 816-822-8866. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to all your friends. This is the hottest thing going, not only in Ferguson, not only in St. Louis, not only in Kansas City, but the United States and worldwide are we online. So thank you very much and be sure to tune in, turn on each and every Saturday. Thank you very much. It's been a long